We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. I'm not responsive. To accusations that I'm some kind of a genius. <laughs> okay? I'm not a genius. Just because Leave I watch less reality TV than you, <laughs> and I watch less sports than you, and I'm spending time continuing to enlighten myself, don't turn around and say, I have something more special than you. If I have something special than you, it's recognizing that I'm still curious and I want to keep learning. So I'm a lifelong learner. Thank you for joining us for a Torre Show Patreon exclusive, and it's an incredible ep. Neil deGrasse Tyson, one of the most brilliant men in America. You probably heard him talk about science and all that, but I wanted to get away from that. I wanted to hear him talk about life, about race, about wine, about his father, about almost anything but science partly because science generally makes my eyes glaze over, but also because I wanted to hear him talk about sides of him that I didn't really know much about. Neil recently dropped a new episode of Masterclass, but it's not just about science. It's also about communication because he's an amazing communicator on any subject. Here we go. It's Neil deGrasse Tyson on Torre Show. You talk about race a lot in this book, right? You talk about your father's best friend running and somebody says, uh, catch that nigger. And he takes it as inspiration. You're not going to catch me and go faster. And you're, you come off of that. Yeah, he said, this is one nigger he ain't going to catch. Right. Just to, yeah. And you come off of that saying, this is something we would call a microaggression. And you and in the previous generation, we responded to microaggressions with, as inspiration. Yes. And you, which suggests to me you're saying in the post-generation, we don't respond to them that way. From what I can tell, um, aggressions are, um, they're affronts as they would always be, have always been. Uh, but you have to ask, how do you react to them? What is your, um, what are your receptors doing when you experience a microaggression? Do you sink into depression? Do you fight back? Do you get sad? Do you confront the person? What do you do? And as you go farther back in time, based on my read of, based on my own life experience and then history books, or, sorry, my life experience, my parents' stories and then history books predating them, the frequency of affronts 
to your dignity, to your self-worth, were very high. And so you could not possibly address every single one of them. You, yeah. You'd just be dead. Yeah. So you needed some mechanism to either ignore them, have thick skin, or, or, um, or parlay them into forces of achievement. And that's, what, that's the story I gave with my father's best friend uh, on the track. You seem to make, and I don't want to spend all the time with this, but you seem to make little references to like, I've dealt with stuff, but I kept going. Right? Oh, you, yeah. You kind of talk about NASA. Like, you know, I made it in spite of you, not because of you. And other institutions, I made it in spite of you, not because of you. Right. Can you talk a little bit more about what you're talking about in terms of like what you've sort of had to overcome, what you've gone through, what you've what you've battled back against? Yeah, I don't think of it as going through anything because that implies that, you know, there's this turbulent spot. Okay, now let me get ready. Let me, you know, yeah. let me get tough. And then you go through the turbulent spot, like like the Marines <laughs> in a boot camp or something. <laughs> you don't There's see that wall. Let's get ready for that wall. Let's get, <laughs> you don't see it coming. That's what's different here is that so much of what I describe, so much of what is experienced, it was simply endemic mm. to civilization. Rather, endemic to America at the time. And when it's endemic you don't see it as a singular thing. You see it as the daily expression of what it is to be who you are in that environment. This is, uh, uh, by the way, being black in America and experiencing those forces is not fundamentally different from being female in an environment sure. where opportunities are not your way. You're not allowed to be a medical doctor, talking 50 years ago, of course. Um, you're not there are expectations for you that might not be a match for your own ambitions. That's endemic. It's not a single occasion that you just have to get through and you come out on the other side. When it's endemic, then you absorb it as a state of existence. And do you have it keep you down? Do you use it to excel? I, in all of my efforts, used it as a reason to excel rather than turn around and fight back. Because when something's endemic, what are you actually fighting? You can fight the individual, but it's too deep in, our, in the culture and people's thoughts and attitudes and biases. It's too deep. It's like you know a multi-headed monster. You cut off one head and another head grows, two heads grow in its place. Sure. So, um, by the way, you can martyr yourself you can commit your life to trying to change it. And I use the martyr figuratively and literally. Many people who yeah. are first out of the box to do that, they're remembered for being first out of the box, but they lose their lives in the process, Martin Luther King among them. So Malcolm X, you look at people who are trying to make those changes, trying to change the endemic state of things, and it co it'll cost you to do so. Are you speaking... Jackie Robinson, you were surely a fan of Jackie Robinson as a kid, right? Because yeah, he no, was well, I, I post date him, but I knew all about him. Yeah, I wrote a was it a fifth grade book report on him. This is while he was still alive, actually, and I still have that book report. 
Would you say that he lost his life because his life became entirely about the struggle rather than just being a person, just being a baseball player? No, no, because he didn't visibly, actively fight the mm. system. Mm. He persisted in his excellence in the face. So, yes, the fact that you are in a system that rejects you daily, you can call that fighting it. But when I think of the way I use the term, I meant something different. He could have turned around and and gone to every dugout and and tried to be actively be in people's faces uh, or fight back physically. He could have done all of those, but he did not. He retained a level of dignity that should be the model for us all in those but situations. But not fighting back was critical in that it showed the dignity and the class of black Americans, which then proved, oh, they deserve to be out here. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of ways to affect change. Um, there are some that required fighting in order to wake people up and Absolutely. know and understand. Uh, you look at the riots of the 1960s. It's not clear, you know, as much blood was shed during that time, it's not clear how uh, how responsive the American government would have been without it. That's right. That's it's right. just not clear. That's right. You have to think about that. No, the, the the riot and the property damage and the business damage. And what that looked internationally, what that looked like internationally. That definitely motivated people. Right. And that can't be the whole of right. so, movement, so not but... everything is turn the other cheek. But I'm just saying that if you don't turn the other cheek and fight, you get martyred. Mm -hmm. And people will remember you and it can have an effect. It, it can institute change. Yes. But that's not the only way to go about it. That's all I'm saying. And in my life, I did not fight it. I navigated it. Like Jackie Robinson? Yes, precisely. I'm doing my thing. I'm, I'm doing my thing, and I will be as best as I possibly can. And in the end, you'll have to recognize my excellence. Yeah. And I'm not pushing Rather than, and you will, And you do not have, I will not even give you a place to stand to say that I am somehow angry or right. I'm transcending your urges to have me respond in anger. That that takes energy, by the way. That might take more energy than fighting back in the end of the day. So no, he was not a martyr. He would have been martyred if he fought and then he lost his contract or whatever. Um, you're martyred if you don't fully um, realize your ambitions. I mean, for all the, for the benefit of others who come after you, for all that you talk about race in this book, you don't say this happened, this person, this institution did this, right? Like you reference, like NASA, I made it in spite of you, not because of you, but you don't say you specifically cut me out here. This, per which another would be petty. Yeah, well, I mean, another petty. and there's a line in that very letter, that letter to NASA, where I say, I I knew it wasn't just you; it was America. Right, and it was a it was a symptom of America being America, not a specific conduct of NASA itself. And I knew that. I I was, you know, eleven, and I knew this. I was 11, I was ten when we what was it? I say I was ten when we landed on the moon. I turned eleven that year. I knew this, so I didn't hold NASA uniquely to blame for this. 1969. 69, we landed on the moon. Right. So I was I turned eleven that year. So. 
So, but I'm awake enough. Uh, I can't use the word woke because no one used that word back then. <laughs> uh, I was uh, awake. Is that the same as woke? Sure. <laughs> I, I was awake enough to say, I am, this is what it is. I have ambitions. By the way, they don't include being an astronaut, so that's fine. But just, you should know, NASA, as I tell them 60 years later, that I became a scientist and an astrophysicist not because you inspired me, in spite of, not because your astronauts inspired me, it's in spite of the fact that I was not, I did not have a seat at that table or anyone of my skin color. Yeah, and you knew that thing. So, so by the way, you comment about the frequency with which race is mentioned in the book. Um, the book is what has been going on under the hood for decades with me and people writing in. There's, uh, there are things I generally don't put out publicly because they're, they're personal or in my exchange with others, it's personal to that person. Their person might be in search of God or, or career paths or in search of meaning. And I don't generally, I've never taken that public. I got permissions from people to share my correspondence with them in this volume on the possibility that they could, they could uh, uh, bring insight to those who are in search themselves of whatever it is you're searching on the possibility that someone with a science brain wiring could help you think it through. When I listen to you, I sense genius, but I also sense that a large part of your success is partly because of the research but partly because of how you communicate. And you could have chosen any number of fields to master, but the communication ability allows you to communicate anything very well. And like, I wanna hear about how you think about communicating and how you think about talking to people. Cause you communicate complex stuff in a very simple, joyful, energetic way. I was one of those kids who was falling asleep in the back of science class. And I imagine if you were up there, it would have been you, like- You turned out okay. Dr. Tyson <laughs> makes this stuff so interesting. So a couple of things. I think that science is inherently interesting. So I'm not making it interesting. I'm revealing a pre-existing fact mm. to whoever will listen. That's A. B. Um, I think many people confuse genius with- hard work, go to anyone who is singularly accomplished and then just talk to them about their lives. You know, they wake up at five and they're working on their manuscript or they're composing music and they're, they're lost in their craft, almost to the exclusion of personal hygiene. There will be some stories they will tell you and generally I think the way we'd like to invoke genius is that it's some natural gift for thinking yeah, you know, you can go up to Michael Phelps with however many gold medals he won in the Olympics. I don't remember for swimming and say, Oh, he's a natural. He's got the, and then you talk to him. He's in the pool at four 30 in the morning. He's in the water a hundred hours a week. But Are you in the water a hundred hours a week? No, I'm not. But I imagine th for that particular discipline, a hundred hours a week, I would still not be great. I have certain things. Go on, tell that, yourself that. That I have. Well, no, there's you know certain things that I have aptitude for. That if I do that a lot, I'll be good at this. All right, it's both, right? This thing, aptitude, that implies that you'll be better at it than someone than someone else will because you have the aptitude and they don't. I have come to learn in my old age that it's, it has shit to do with aptitude. Forget the word. 
Forget it, okay? By the way, even the SATs changed what the A means in that abbreviation. What does it mean now? Scholastic assessment test, not aptitude test. I did not know That's correct. Last I checked. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids, and everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real, so I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. So aptitude means nothing. Well, no. no there's I, no, you nobody. Can say, may, it, look it up in a dictionary. It has meaning in a dictionary. No, of course. I'm telling you how I have come to relate to that word. And in my old age, the word means nothing. So anybody could master anything. No, that's they, not what I said. Okay. Okay. I'm just saying that if you love something, whatever is the measures of aptitude of you relative to that subject compared to someone else in that subject, if you love it, you will probably spend more time being good at it than another person who might be measured to have higher aptitude, but who doesn't love it. Mm. So now you spend your life in pursuit of what you love and add up those hours, and it is far greater than any number of hours you've ever spent in a classroom taking tests so that someone else can decide whether you have an aptitude for something. I, I, I grew up playing tennis. So it's about I played, ambition. I played it's every about day. Ambition. I played every day. 
I practiced at home, on the court. We did tournaments. We did everything possible to get good. And as a result, you were way better than you would have been had you not done that. True, okay. but I'm not as good as some guys who just had it and they practiced a little and they were better than me. How do you know they only practiced a little? Well, because I, I, like, I know them. I know Peter. I know he was out there. Or I know this guy, Steve. He would take a month off all the time, <laughs> you know, and then he'd, he'd hit for one hour and he'd crush me. And I'm like, I've been playing every day and doing push-ups and studying and reading <laughs> books. <laughs> and, oh, heck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that, why so, that was I know, funny. That's it's just push-ups. <laughs> that's very random in the, in the sentence. Um, so... So um, there are people who have singular expressions of talent out there. You look at Michael Jordan. Just recently, I looked at a highlight reel. 50, Michael Jordan's 50 greatest shots. And, you know, it was superhuman. It's what he was accomplishing. So if I practice, will I be Michael Jordan? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I've actually never tried. Probably not. But I'm not that interested in basketball to even attempt that. I'm interested in these other subjects. So people who come to me and say, oh, you're a genius, you're this or you're that. I graduated 350th in my high school class out of 700, okay? With a B slightly side of plus average. So am I the person who the teacher said, oh, he'll go far? No, I'm not that person in that class. No teacher, K through 16 in my life, was ever in a position to say, he'll go far. Did you not have Carl Sagan write you a personal letter trying to get you to go to his college? Yes. And you, but you had also the option of Harvard. Yes. So clearly somebody noticed 18 year old Neil deGrasse Tyson. They weren't looking at my grades. That's my point. People use grades as the measure what were they of whether you're at? smart. That's how, okay. They used test scores as the measure of how smart you are. Yet after your second job, is anyone asking you your test scores? No. Is anyone asking you your GPA? No. It couldn't be less relevant in your life. Yet for some reason, we've created a system where it is the most important thing in your life while you're in school, yet most of your life you will not be in school. Right. There's a disconnect there that, I'm, that concerns me because I think we're losing talent because the system declares that you do not have the talent, the talent, the aptitude, the the natural the, ability. The, the natural ability. I'm. I'll give this quick example. Um. So my first time on John Stewart when he hosted The Daily Show. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know he's smart, he's witty, he's funny, he's he informed. Good. Yeah. And in those first couple of years, a politician would go on and try to give their sort of stump speech. He'd be all in and out of it, and they, they'd be a deer in the headlights. And I said, I will not be a deer in the headlights in this interview. <laughs> so I studied how the I, – I calculated on observation how many seconds he allows his guests to speak before he jumps in, before he jumps in with a comedic quip. Okay, why? Because if you don't complete your idea and then he jumps in with a comedic quip and then you laugh and now it's dangling there and how do you get back to it now that you're laughing at something else and it just becomes a, a, a maelstrom of an interview. So I said, let me find that out. Then let me read three days of current events because he's a very big, uh, he likes weaving it in. 
Why three days? Because four days ago, you're not going to remember it, and it won't work in a joke. It has to be active. Otherwise, he has to explain the current event, and that doesn't work comedically. So I did this. I went on the show. Afterwards, people are saying, wow, you and him were such a natural. You had such good chemistry. Oh, you're natural at that. They had no fucking idea how much, how much energy I put in to making that look natural. To being a what, good what communicator. What I'm saying is I wasn't invoking some genius. All that mattered was I cared that I gave a good interview in that format to his audience in that program. And I put in that effort. That's effort. That's time. That's commitment. That's ambition to do the right, to, 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 to give the right interview to the right audience. Mm -hmm. You're going to turn around and say, I'm genius. No, I worked harder than you. That's what happens. That's why my interview went better than your interview. Mm -hmm. I thought about it a little harder up to telling me it's because I've got some natural <laughs> inherent. No. And another example of this, I'd give a public talk, thousands of people in the room, big audience. And afterwards, I've had people come up to me and say, oh, you, you're having a good time up there. Another, cat, another category of response is, you were working hard up there. To a person, those are school teachers, who know what I'm doing. The school they, teachers recognize yes. that you are working your butt off. Oh, yes. But to the rest of them, they see it's, a poise it's, that they it's think a, he's, he's... Oh, he's a natural. Correct. So I'm not responsive to accusations that I'm some kind of a genius. <laughs> okay? I'm not a genius. Just because Leave I watch less reality TV than you, <laughs> and I watch less sports than you, just because I watch less of that than you, and I'm spending time continuing to enlighten myself, don't turn around and say, I have something more special than you. If I have something special than you, it's recognizing that, that I'm still curious and I want to keep learning. Mm. So I'm a lifelong learner. And that's what we're going to have to change in the school system. You have people coming down the steps, graduation day, tossing their school notes in the air, saying what? I'm done with this. Done. School's out. Done with this. They'll do it. Every year, they'll especially do it on graduation. They're happy that school is over. And I'm thinking, what? It's, your only job was to learn. That's your only job. And I'm not going to blame you. I'm going to blame the school system. Where learning became a chore, an obligation, something's wrong. Well, because learning ought to be a celebration well, of it, enlightenment. Is, it especially comes in in the undergraduate context because you are forced to learn several subjects that you don't inherently care about. And maybe it'll open you up to something, but you know, when you go to graduate school, people don't leave graduate school and say, yay, I'm done with this, and throw their notes in the air. They're like, I become a master at this thing I really care about. I'm so excited. A very perceptive point. In graduate school, they don't toss their notes in the air. <laughs> very perceptive and important point. The difference is, and you know this, I'm just gonna remind you of it. Yeah, you're forced to take subjects you don't care about. But surely you've taken subjects you don't care about where the professor was amazing, and because they were amazing, you ended up caring about that subject. Yeah. If not, then you were missing a few professors in, your, in, in the well, portfolio. The, the, so, so we need better professors. 
so that everybody is as excited about the subject being taught as the person was when they got their degree in that subject to begin with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's right. Tell me about your wrestling career. You wrestled in high school. You wrestled at Harvard. Yeah. Yeah, and a little bit in graduate school. Yeah. In graduate school, too? Yeah. Tell me about your wrestling career. What, okay. was, what was your weight class? So 190. Were you good? I was undefeated in high school and captain of the team. So that would count as a yes, I guess. In college? An answer to that question. Well, I'm How'd getting you, there. I'm okay, getting there. Okay. Um, so 190, as, that's a really curious weight category. They've readjusted the category since then, but back then it was 190. Because... Because if I were one pound above weight class, then I get classified as unlimited. <laughs> you don't want that. Okay, so I had... And you're with much... Bigger. You don't want that. So I had very good incentive to hit 190 every single time. So I was 190 uh, senior in high school through all of college. Kept that 190. So I was undefeated. And... I was quick. I was strong. What was your move? Oh, I have very long arms. I have like crazy, stupidly long arms. So I need custom, practically custom shirts to accommodate this. And so as a result, when you lock up, uh, I, I don't know if they call it hooking up anymore because hooking up has other meaning sure. in today's time. Sure. <laughs> they used to call it, when you hook up on the wrestling match, probably just lock up, You, my, I could reach down and pick your ankle and you'll fall backwards. Right. To your back. Right. So it's a takedown pin maneuver that I could execute. Um, so I was good at that. However, because in wrestling, everyone is the same weight as you that you wrestle, I was t- almost always taller than my opponent. If they are the same weight as I am, which they are, they are necessarily stronger. They're not as tall. They have bigger muscles if we're the same weight. The large strength goes as the cross-section of muscle area. So they would be stronger. So I have to watch out to not get captured within a tight grip because mm. I would have a hard time getting out of that. So I have to be quick. I needed to be clever about where my limbs were relative to their strength points. So go to college. I wrestle in college. Losing record, four out of five years. losing Because then, then I meet these boys who are like, corn fed from nebraska that's a whole other thing than like midwest. city wrestling here in new york city i grew up in new york city yeah. midwest the whole these are these are cow hauling <laughs> and, and, and it's a tradition <laughs> it's out a, there it's a, it's a dan culture. gable it's and a culture yeah it's a so i started wrestling these guys it's like whoa okay this is a level of commitment that i don't know that i'm capable of but i like the sport, no less. Well, I can see your level of commitment is is at a certain level because you have normal looking ears, <laughs> right? My ears are not cauliflowered, right? Cauliflower yeah. ears. Yeah, well, I wore protection st- too, but, but even yeah. still, they the ear becomes. So going, what happens is when you're really serious, you don't even want the headgear, right? And and you just it, it, it's just so in you. So going from because you know, but like, I just want to make it clear. Okay, good. I enjoy the sport so much. Because it, it's just you out there. Oh yeah. Are you faster? Are you clever? It's just, and if you lose, you you lost. Yeah, you just you lost. You got, you got your butt. You kicked. can't you can't blame somebody else. Somebody didn't drop the pass that you threw them. Nope. There was not. It's just you. And the purity of that contest attracted me greatly. So yeah, I was I had a losing record 
three out of the four years of college, but I, I loved it. Loved it immensely. I mean, you know, like I, I you know, I, pl- I play tennis. You get your butt kicked. Apparently, you there's, don't play tennis very well. No, no, let the record show. No, no, I do, I do. <laughs> but when you lose, there's an emotional component, not a physical component, right? Going from kicking everybody's butt in high school to losing a lot in college—that's physically painful, right? How was that for you? Oh, I didn't care that I was winning. I was good, but I. I, that's not where my emotions were invested. My emotions were, am I, can I get better? Sure. Can I, am I in the shape necessary? Am I flexible enough? Am I strong enough? Do I know enough moves? Have I drilled them enough? Do I have enough stamina? There's nothing like wrestling stamina. And I, I can. True. Okay. You've thought about sports. Yes. I'm going to, I'm going to tell you something and you take it for the rest of your life. You ready? Okay. Grab anybody in the street. Anybody who's done any sport at all, say, what's the hardest sport you've ever done? You'll get all manner of answers, a cross-country skiing, a marathon, rowing, depending on what portfolio, what's in their competitive portfolio. You might get um, any one of these answers. If they have ever wrestled, the answer is wrestling, period which means you cannot even describe it to someone. Mm. You have to do it to understand. So I liked that because it tested my limits. I was so tired after one match, I barely held my pee (laughs) as I laid down on the mat, (laughs) suffering from exhaustion. Then you realize, wow, it takes muscle energy (laughs) to hold your pee in. And if you... If you just spent all that muscle energy on the mat, you got nothing left to hold in your pee, okay? <laughs> I don't know if after a tennis match you've ever felt that way. Well, I've been unable to walk home, but not quite that. Not quite that, okay. <laughs> so uh, that's what I embraced. The winning was a sidelight. So going from a undefeated record captain to a, a very defeated record, that was... I didn't. I was. I was unfazed by that because you were. In fact, I was a very good rower. I was a really, really good rower. Which Gladwell says is the hardest sport because the physical pain. It just means he's never wrestled. So just ignore that sentence. <laughs> I'm sure. Okay. From the, look at him, it's clear he's never wrestled. True, true. Okay. <laughs> but he talks about like because you sprint at the beginning and then you have to keep going faster. So yeah. you're in physical pain the whole time. Yeah. The sprint is you want to. You got to get eight. If it's, if it's the eight shells, you you got to get eight bodies in motion and the weight of the boat and your coxswain so that you can, you go from zero to some cruising speed. Then you want some sprint energy at the end in case a boat is a little bit ahead of you. And you need sprint energy midway. If someone's catching up on you and you want to sort of mess with them, you'll go into a little extra uh, pulling session just to maintain your speed if they're inching up on you. Um, I was a far better rower, but I just didn't. And with, with crowds on the, I went to, I, in college in the Ivy oh, League, and the Ivy League loves the rowers, right? So, I mean, Harvard, ch- Harvard rowing, Harvard is rowing special. is a thing, yeah. and with the crowds on the, and I just the crowds did not attract me as much as losing on a wrestling match, taking my body to its extreme limits. That you, love. and those limits are greater limits than rowing. And can we talk about another? area where you took your body to a limit oh sure 
you were, is this true? You were an exotic dancer at a no, strip no, club? No, no. See how stories. Tell me. See what happens. See, I read this in the New Yorker. Everything no, no. in the New Yorker is true. Is <laughs> oh, it not? Oh, you read the New Yorker to get your information. Is this not okay. this is not the New York Post? Okay. <laughs> Did this? Did she said this happened in Texas. Okay, so I was part of a dance company in Texas, as well as in college. Three at different times, I was a performing member of three different dance companies. And in graduate school, they don't pay you very much, and so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm existing hand to mouth and so i thought is there any way to get some money to supplement this meager graduate student stipend that i'm getting and some of my fellow dancers said why don't you come downtown we we're in an exotic dancer club and you can dance and you get tips so i said okay let me let me at least observe this so i go there and these are my fellow male dancers out there with much less clothes on than when we perform and one of them came out dancing to jerry lee lewis's great balls of fire okay. with an asbestos jockstrap that had been <laughs> infused with with um lighter fluid and ignited and i'm embarrassed to say that it was not until that moment that i said to myself Maybe I can tutor math instead. <laughs> I don't know why that, that should have been my first thought. That should have been my first thought, and it was not. And I'm embarrassed by that. So afterwards, I, I tutored math, and that's reliable income. There's always somebody that needs math tutoring. And so there it was. And so, no, I was never an exotic dancer. What but you- I was in very good shape at the time, and I could do a full split. Um, if I had wrestling strength and dancing agility, uh, and flexibility and grace that's a that's a potent combination what do you know about the science and by the way that was 50 pounds ago okay. so you know. <laughs> what do you know about the scientific world that scares you no nothing about science scares me what scares me is people who are in power who do not understand the power of science that scares me people have power over science and don't understand it and think they understand it that's that's scary. I mean, the possibility of a comet coming and hitting us and like causing well, not, some major. That's not science. That's just events. Well, I mean, I mean, like, what do you know about the scientific world that the average person does not know? That, oh, like, I mean, the ways we will go extinct. Yeah, I can, yeah. I can enumerate those if you'd like. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, like things that could realistically happen within, let's say, our lifetime. Our lifetime. Um, we perfect AI, and it decides that we are a nuisance on Earth. Well, this was the next question I was going to ask you, that Yuval Harari's thesis in Homo Deus is like, in the next 50 to 100 years, they will be the dominant thing on the planet. Yeah, so it's not clear. It's not... Uh, it's easy to imagine that happening. Let's put it that way. Yes. That we will end up... We, they will be our overlords. They that, what does that look like? Does that look like 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 the president is AI or the president has to turn to Alexa for every real conversation? No, no, no. We will be their pets. They might find it's useful to do things that they can't do. Like we can construct construction, for example. It's not clear that that's the first thing AI can take over because – I would think you say art. They can't take over art, but they can make a building without us. Um – yeah, they'd have to like survey the ground, figure out where to dig, dig. I mean, there's the labor involved in that 
is not so repeatable from one place to another that that it's not obvious that they could take that over. That's all I'm saying. Uh, it, it would come, but it wouldn't be the first things they take over. There's plenty more they would take over before that happens. Okay. To, to what, what is the scenario sites? to where we become their pets, as you're saying? We would only become their pets if we were still somehow useful to them. No, what I mean, like, are they taking over politics to where we're no longer making- They take over this? everything. How? And they just make sure we're fed and they, they feed our addictions because we're very addictable as a species. So they'll just addict us and you'll always come back to it without any arguments. Um, think, if you're an alcohol addict and they're always giving you alcohol, you'll never leave. If you're an Oxycontin addict, then they always give, you'll just never leave. If you're a sex addict, they'll just always give you sex and you never leave. So that's how you can completely enslave a population. You, f you get them addicted and feed them addictions. And if AI needed us for some other reason, they could keep us around in exactly that way. So you have to make sure we're fed. They don't want, us, they don't want an uprising. So they just feed our needs. If you're fed really tasty food and have what, all your wants fulfilled, you're done. Sure, go on, I'm good. Do whatever you want. Yeah, do it. Take over the world. I'm fine. I'm I'm covered. So, it's like a turkey, that's a turkey in every pot to the nth degree. Yes, like yes, I, I'm. That's a, how you enslave a population of humans, and AI would figure that out because it would understand all of our needs and wants because it would read every bit of literature we've ever read about the human condition. And we could do that in five minutes. So you, you, so then in that scenario, AI is the president of the United States or whatever? It wouldn't need a president of the United States. It would just make decisions. You don't need governance. It, is, it, it makes all decisions for you. It's, think about what happens in Congress. They debate things, right. usually in the absence of information that would uniquely decide the answer. Right. So AI would just figure out what the answer is and then just do it. There'd be no debates. And... You have to wonder what is the motive of AI? Is it to preserve the earth? Is it its own survival? Is it is there a condition where it wants to keep humans happy because we still have to, you know, we still need to help it out somehow? You know, I I don't know. But yeah, that could happen. That so that's a that's a danger. Okay, what else? Um, my favorite is the one you can't <laughs> cite. Uh, and I'm told I haven't ever read this, but I was told that Kurt Vonnegut first wrote this. He said, this is the last sentence ever spoken in the history of the world. Ready? It's one scientist to the other. Let's try it the other way. <laughs> <laughs> last sentence ever spoken. <laughs> what does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive. 
T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. On March 16th, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's that. There's, you know, a, a, a runaway virus that once we get good at creating life, uh, someone, a diabolical person can create a life form that is um, infectious in a way that is hard to stop. Here's what you need. You would need a virus that infects its host but has no symptoms until you have spread the virus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then there are symptoms and then we isolate you, but it's too late. It's already spread. If a virus is particularly lethal, it is not in the interest of its own survival mm -hmm. because it kills you before it had a chance to spread. Right. So, or if you have a virus that goes airborne, then you don't even need direct contact with someone. You can imagine someone developing this as some kind of a weapon that then goes astray. Is that any different philosophically from nuclear weapons that could go astray? Right? It's the same idea. Here's, a, here's something that you could use for the greater good, but I've weaponized it. And now it's weaponized on a level where we could end all of civilization. So I worry that humans are not wise enough to be shepherds of the power that science can bring in the service of civilization in the first place. Mm. Can you... Am I bumming out your listeners? No. This, I, mean, I mean, yes, but in, 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 in a very powerful way. Can uh -huh. you give us a quick course on wine? Wine? Yes. Oh, uh, I'm not terribly public about wine. I mean, because there are plenty of other people who are. But I will tell you that, and I read this once. I haven't verified it, but I was intrigued by it. What I read was that if you're a farmer and you have the choice of planting either hops, barley, the ingredients for beer, or grapes, in 100% of those decisions, they plant grapes. So that the places that are known for their beer, it's because they can't grow wine. Sure. That's an interesting fact. And we look at how long wine has been with us. Uh, it's, it's even biblical, right? I think it was Noah was, grew grapes. Okay. So wine has been with us as part of our culture like forever. And it's intriguing how the range of quality and satisfaction different wines can bring. And if you're not, if you don't go to wine tastings and you don't, because you think it's too snooty or whatever reasons you might have, you might never know the heights to which wine can deliver pleasure to your palate. And so you live, that's fine. You know, your life is not worse off for it. But if you get a friend to invite you to a really fancy wine tasting and then pay attention to the wine, you will see the heights to which wine, the heights to which wine can go. 
And there are people who seek that out. What you've, the heights that you've experienced with wine, what did you taste? What was it? So it's more than just what you taste. And the, the smell and the... Oh yeah, no, no, I mean even more than that. It hits other dimensions of your existence. <laughs> so, for example, uh, I've had wine. Uh, let me put this another way. I remember I was drinking Chardonnay, and I'm picky about my Chardonnay. And then I, uh, you know, I go through three Chardonnays, and the fourth one, okay, this one's pretty good. But it like costs more than the other three Chardonnays, right? So I said, damn, I hate that. So I start, what I started to do was, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to buy Chardonnay that's twice as expensive and drink it half as often. That way I'm spending the same amount of money as I did before. But now my experiences are fewer in number. Yet the value of that experience is greater than twice what I was getting from the other wines. In other words, you can do the math on this, and there's some wines that return to you an olfactory experience that is worth not having 20 other wines that are cheaper that will not take you there. Mm. And so, so there are wines I've had where I kept thinking about it three days later. Where I lay awake at night wondering how did the winemaker possibly infuse this grape juice with that level of depth and complexity and emotion. That is not just what the wine tastes like, what it tasted like. It is the experience of the wine. Then you can add another dimension, which is what is the company you had it with? Where were you when you had it? A lot of wine in various regions of the world rose up to fit the food of that region best. It's, it's just the natural selection of what works and what doesn't over the generations. So one of the best Tuscan wines I've ever had was in Tuscany. And there were all tr- olive trees and one to my left and vineyards to my right. And, and, and old wrinkly, crusty farmers walking down the aisles of the thing. And I'm looking at it and it's like, am I liking this wine at this level because I am where this wine was invented? Mm. Like if I took it out and I drank it in my living room, you know, or in my Eden kitchen, is it going to have the same effect? Probably not. So another dimension is what it, what are the circumstances and conditions under which you're experiencing the bottle? That that matters. Mm-hmm. There are people who save bottles. We had that on our wedding night or on our honeymoon or on this. Sure. And it, the, it, the it carries memories. The Madeleine. You know, the 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 the, the, the associations that we have that goes when in, we eat or drink it. In addition and beyond the pure olfactory experience that it gives. Mm-hmm. You, what you talked about with money and the Chardonnay, are you smart with money? Are you good? Are you like, are you like? I, it took my wife to rein in some of my overspending. I would overspend my credit card. I said, I'll pay it back. But I would enjoy what I was doing at the time. I remember I bought, within a three-month period, this is how old I am, within a three-month period, I bought probably 100 record albums. Because I thought I was behind in vinyl? certain genres. Vinyl, yeah. I thought I was behind in the genre, certain genres, jazz, blues, classical. And I went up to some friends. I said, what's your best? I went to friends who are 
classical music announcers, jazz, blues announcers in college. And I said, give me the list. And so they gave me the list and I systematically bought all those albums. And I went into debt for that. And it was really slow that. to come out of it. And my wife, who I met in graduate school, uh, she never spent more money than she had. I was like, what? How do you do <laughs> that? Won't the economy collapse <laughs> if you do this? <laughs> so, so no, it took, a, it took a while, but she trained me to be frugal. Not stingy, but frugal. I could tell the exact same story. And it wouldn't be about buying record albums, mm -hmm. but the same thing of like, oh, you know, spent a bunch, I'll make more. And my wife, I'm like, how do you always have less than you like you made this much you only spent that how do you do that right. and she's like you have to do same thing yeah so so and since then i've i've been frugal so which leads me to the next thing so that's been going on three decades yeah um some of your favorite albums are so uh i, I have to give you a slight backstory on this um i count myself among the ranks of curious people in the world. And if there's something I don't know that other people care a lot about, I want to understand why they care about it. Yeah. What am I missing? Is there some background I should have? Is there some learning I need? Is there some insights I don't yet, haven't yet, have yet to acquire? So I saw this written, why are people so gaga over classical music or choral music or, or what's going on in the blues? Or and and jazz. These are sort of four. Uh, I, I count choral music separate from orchestral classical music in this example. So I said, give me a list of the most fun things to listen to, so the most popular, and give me one that's the most critically acclaimed, because they're not always the same. So I got dual list in each of those categories, and then I bought them all. And I systematically went one by one. I said, oh, this sucks. How am I going to do this? But they said it's important. Okay, I'll put it on a cassette tape, and I'll just carry it with me and play it in the background. Well, I did this with Miles Davis' Kind of Blue. Mm. Well, you're, I didn't mm, yet. I'm not there yet. It's like, <laughs> this is kind of slow. What am I doing here? This is, what? Why doesn't he blow a little harder for this? <laughs> I, I was very blunt, right? But I was there, and I'm like making breakfast one morning, and I have it just on a loop in the cassette tape, and I just had to drop, I dropped the utensil I was using, and I turned around, stared at the stereo. I said, holy shit, this is deep. This is profound. But so I had to earn that. It was not. So it didn't come do. that way out of the box. Sure. Same with fine. Uh, Beethoven's late string quartets. That's some squeaky string instruments there, right? It's the the, the bass, the cello, two violins, or whatever it is. Um, and I didn't understand it. I didn't know where it was coming from. I put it on a cassette, played it back over and over and over and over and over and over and over, and eventually, I was grabbed by it. So. Then I wondered, would that happen for any music at all? So I randomly picked some music that no one, uh, um, and it, it didn't happen with that music. Mm. It, it didn't ever happen, actually. Mm. So that told me there is something to this, yeah. and it's worthy of further exploration. And, and so now I'm, I think I'm a very good listener. Unfortunately, I don't play or, or sing, except in the shower. Um, but I think I'm a very good listener of the blues, of jazz, and of all forms of classical music.
What else do you love? Name me some albums or some artists. Uh, Buddy Guy. Yes. As um, I just, you know, if, if he if I'm driving the car and one of his songs, one of his pieces come up, I just have to pull over to the side of the road and drive real slow and just <laughs> absorb it. Yes. Or just actually just pull over, let the song finish out. Yeah. Uh, something about the blues is, for me, it has a potency, an emotional potency that other kinds of music don't have yeah. for me. Yeah. Uh, rather, it hits a level that others hit levels, but this hits a deeper level for me. Yeah. The emotion, the how in Buddy Guy, he'll be wailing, but then it's his guitar that takes over the wailing. And that transition was not even entirely obvious. So the guitar becomes an extension of his need to communicate to you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I had similar feelings with the fourth movement of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. This is the first time I'm told that anyone ever put choral, uh, the human voice in the classical form of a symphony, of a four movement symphony. And this is the Ode to Joy symphony, the one we're all familiar with it if you heard it, if you're not otherwise familiar. Uh, and I'm not good at humming tunes, let me say. That one, it's, it's the Ode to Joy is what it's called. Uh, fans of Die Hard, uh, that's the ending music of that movie. <laughs> nice. it's, it's often played during Christmas time. That's the full up orchestral ending of that piece is in Die Hard, the, the the last, in fact, it goes into the credits, I think. But anyhow, in that, there is symphonic form, classical form, trying to capture human emotion and human feelings and human, uh, uh, can this music mean something to you because you have personalized the, the notes, the tones. And Beethoven realized, you know, there's only so far the instrument's gonna take us. Mm. Are you trying to communicate with the human soul? We need some humans. Yes. So in came the humans to take the ode to joy out of the hands of the instruments and into the soul of the singer. And so this triumphant work of music ends in the in the command of the human voice. And then he dies. That's his last symphony. And he was deaf when he composed it. Are there any rappers on this list? Rappers. Um, Your personal? I'm old school. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of old school. Okay. Um, so, what oh, you mean? Pop, you know, pop music, okay? Or any, you know, just music you'd find on the radio. So, I'm very populist with regard to that. So, my favorite songs are many people's favorite songs. This, that's why over the decades yeah. so i'm not one of these who rejects something that's popular just because it got popular you know these people are out oh, there 100 you know yeah when Paco bell's canon was yeah. used for a movie all of a sudden it became like the worst 
music ever composed. And I listened to it again recently. It was very beautiful music. Just like chill out. Sometimes a pop song gets me and sometimes I'm like, I don't like it because it's so damn pop. No, I that will never get in the way of whether I like a song. How many people like it? How many other people like it? You're measuring whether you like something based on whether someone else likes it. That is not mature. Well, no, if 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 I correct, <laughs> okay. but if I feel like it is overly constructed in order to get that mass response, that will that will shut me down. If it just Lizzo is just beloved by the people, I I I celebrate her as well. Whereas I feel like a lot of Britney Spears songs are like a McDonald's hamburger like what will 90% of the public respond to? This BPM, this vocal tone, this message of I love you, That's baby. That's exactly what happened in spades during the disco era. Disco music was formulaic, and I listened to some of those songs, and I those still love them. Were, many of those songs were not popular. And disco? They were, and they were hated. No, but by non-disco people, they were yeah. reviled. By the, the classic rock folk and the rock folk, they it's yeah. completely hated. Yeah. But they were chart topping songs every do you know that rock artists who crossed over and made disco songs their disco song made more money than any rock song they ever made including you look at uh blondie made uh huge uh what was it um yeah uh, heart of glass no no yeah that's not rap uh rapture yeah Blondie did rapture yeah it made a zillion dollars for them okay a zillion dollars when the Bee Gees crossed over Bee Gees were very 1960s into the 70s classic rock style, and they crossed over. Did Saturday Night Fever made more money than huge, ever before? Huge. Well, I listened nice, to those and I still like it. Had them. a so nice I, movie I, connected to it too, but that always helps. Just to finish, so there's some rap artists from the 80s. I remember when rap was born. Yeah, yeah. Right, and yeah. it was. If you'd ask me, what would still be thriving 30 years hence, disco or rap? It, I would have said disco. I would not have said rap. Yeah. It felt very flash in the pan. And so my parents said the same thing at the time. I mean, I was I, I remembered it distinctly. I said, "This is really fun." We were we were we were totally partying to it. And I I would said it would be sad to see this go in five years. And so so don't ever ask me to predict the future of music. <laughs> yeah. Um. The book concludes with uh, a tribute. Can we say to your father? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. A, a eulogy. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And um. You know, I lost my dad last year. Oh. When did your Dad passed three years ago. Three years ago, okay. and um, you honor him beautifully. Can you tell us about him and how he leads into you? How sort of the way you sort of take from him to become who you are? Yeah. Um, so uh, my parents were married 60, 64 years until his to, death. To the end, wow. right? Wow. And uh, we had a stable household. My mother was a housewife homemaker today i guess we would call that uh, until we were empty nest and she went back to school that was by agreement by the way so the agreement was my father would continue working and then my mother would raise the children at home there were three of you yes and in the middle birth and raise the children and then when we were mostly empty nest enough she would go back to school and pick up her career, which is exactly what happened. And she went back to college. She got a degree in gerontology, became a gerontol got a master's. What is this? Gerontology, the study of the needs that afflict old people. Okay. Okay. And how okay. to resolve that. Geriatric. Okay. okay. Yes, correct. It's a gerontology, geriatrics, the same root. Um, 
And she ended up working for the feds, allocating monies to uh, retirement communities, um, old age centers, nursing homes, this sort of thing. Right. So my father was uh, studied sociology and got his master's at Teachers College, Columbia, and was always his entire life maximally concerned with the plight of the underserved. And in New York City, in the 1960s, it was then known as the ghetto. He got noticed by the city. He got appointed to be a commissioner of human resources by Mayor Lindsay in the 1960s during the most turbulent years of the civil rights movement in the big cities. He, uh, he worked long hours. We'd see him, he'd come home at eight, something like that. But he was home on the weekends and would cook breakfast and dinner on the weekends. So he participated in household when he could. But during the week, it was mostly my mother who, who was raising us. And what I reference in my eulogy are things that he said and did that contain what I would call deep levels of wisdom. You know, what is wisdom? It's, it's ideas, it's wisdom are thoughts that you have that are the distilled essence of your life experience after you've discarded or forgotten the details. That's actually a necessary part of wisdom that allows wisdom to come out in the form of sentences. No one's gonna hand you a 500 page book and say, here's my wisdom. That's, that's, <laughs> that's not wisdom. Wisdom almost by construct has to be so simple and so deep that you just pause and reflect on it without getting mired in details. So one of them was, it's not good enough to be right. You also have to be effective. Mm. You can say, I'm right, therefore it should be this way. You know, we don't have time for you. Have you navigated a path to make this happen? Have you, but for example, the, you know, the water hoses and the, in the South during the, during the protests, okay? Why do we have perfect video and photographs of it? Because the organizers made sure the press was there, knowing that they'd be able to capture those conflicts. Mm -hmm. This was even done, uh, even go back as far as Gandhi. Mm -hmm. This was portrayed in the film Gandhi, where he's ready to have a protest. It is not useful if no one knows about it. If you get your head whooped by the local police and there isn't a photograph of it, you are in the right, but you are not effective. So you invite the press, the sympathetic press. So that for me was very important in getting things done, in navigating the terrain on which you're trying to implement social justice. And the press doesn't write about events that don't happen. Why would they? Well, in the late 1960s, Watts burned. Detroit burned. Washington burned. Newark? Newark burned. New York City did not burn. The most populous ghetto in the country was basically quiet in the wake of the Martin Luther King assassination. 
Yes, there was some minor skirmishes compared to what was going on elsewhere. Now, does anyone write a story? No riots in New York. Mm. That story isn't written. My father was active in the Human Resources Administration. He was the commissioner, a city commissioner, making sure that there were opportunities available to people who needed opportunities for jobs to feed their family. What is a riot if it's not the very last act of desperation? The, vo the, the, it is, the it is, mouthpiece of the voiceless. It is the, it, it not only voiceless people who are also hopeless. Mm -hmm. Once you run out of hope, you have no options. You can have no voice but still hope. You're not going to riot. <laughs> you sure. got to be voiceless and hopeless yeah. Yeah. in it. Yeah. So people in New York, the inner city of New York, didn't, was not without hope or without some confidence that maybe there are opportunities just on the other side of the hill. I'm just saying these are things that my father was engaged in that I will not ever forget. I'm their son, the astrophysicist, but I stayed grounded in what matters for any kind of progressive change in this world. And for me, Progressive change is the inevitable consequence of rational thought applied to challenges. So no, I'm not hitting people over the head saying you should be more progressive because then we've learned that some people dig their heels in more strongly mm -hmm. to oppose you, mm -hmm. especially in modern times where conflict is fomented on social media. But you just get people to think a little differently about things in the face of evidence. I found that can have a potency of its own. And as an educator and as a scientist, this is what I've done. And in the book, essentially every reply to people who have written to me is an attempt to layer onto them some degree of measured rational thinking. There's still some emotion in there. You can't just be cold about it, but you want to empower people to be able to think in new ways. So that they can say, I now know how to analyze this information in ways I did not previously. Thank you for this bit of scientific insight that allows me to do that. And that's what this book is about. Last thing, I ask everybody, what is your superpower? What is the thing within you that has helped propel you and lead to your success? Superpower implies it's something that no one else has yeah, or has access to. And I, I don't want to think of it as a superpower because then that would distinguish me from others. And I don't want to be distinguished from others. I'm not, that's not what I'm about. I'm, like I said, if I know more or you think I'm a genius, it's because I'm working in times when you're not working. That's really all that's happening there. That, that's, that I've thought about it harder than you have, maybe. Okay? That's all that's going on there. But if I were to credit something, let me not call it a superpower. Let me call it a, a resource. It is a love so deep for what it is I do that my fuel tanks were large and deep for when I hit roadblocks in my life. People saying, oh, you shouldn't do this, or you can't do this, or I don't see you there. This happened while I was in school, 
like I said, no teacher ever said he'll go far. So I got no encouragement there. I have to bring the encouragement upon myself. There's a fuel tank that I've been feeding ever since I was nine years old. And I reach into those tanks. And a couple of times when they went a little low, all right, and when you're struggling, and I'd reach in for a little more fuel, how do I replenish the tank? I visit a mountaintop and look up at the night sky and remind myself why I went there in the first place. Maybe my superpower is a big gas tank. By the way, I don't know how many, like I said, I graduated 350th. So you don't turn to me, so I'll never be him because he was valedictorian. No, you can't say that. No, can you? No. So therefore, you got to say something else. Well, what is it? I ask, I look behind me, where are the other people of color doing what I'm doing? Because it's a little bit empty back there. And I lay awake at night wondering whether maybe their fuel tanks weren't as big as mine. They ran out of fuel and took an off-ramp, not realizing what might have been their life's dream. By the way, that's a metaphor for life on Earth. What life forms have never fully manifested in the tree of life for want of mechanisms of survival to get them through whatever might have been the next ass assault on their environmental stability? What, what, what beauties are gone forever? Most life that has ever existed is now extinct. And not only at the hands of humans. Uh, extinction is almost as natural as a speciation in the tree of life. So I, I, I'm saddened to wonder if life could have made it were it not for some will to survive. So how many people did not realize their dreams because they simply gave up? Because the forces around them weighed them down to the point where they could not dig out from under them. And they said, I just got to do what's simpler. Like I said, you take the off-ramp and never get back on the interstate. I had very deep fuel tanks, and they keep me going to this day. That's my superpower. Thanks so much to Neil for an awesome interview. And thanks to you for listening and for contributing to Torre Show via Patreon. It means so much to the whole team that you believe in what we do to support us with your hard-earned dollars. Thank you so much. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington. Our booker is Claudia Jean. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Wednesday and on Friday with more amazing people because the man can't shut us down.
We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids, and everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real, so I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.